Today, I'd like you to turn with me to the second chapter of the book of You might think that church governance would be one of the most mundane and boring subjects to discuss, but Pastor George looks at how the Holy Spirit worked wonders through the early church's organization. Let's listen. This is the third sermon in our series on the newborn church, in which we're trying to see how this church thing got started after Jesus' death and resurrection. Jesus had risen and ascended into heaven, leaving a confused group of his followers, huddling together as they tried to figure out what to do next. Jesus promised to lead them after he left, and the historical journals written by Luke that we know as the Bible books of Luke and Acts are his description of how he did that. The first thing we noted about the church after Jesus' departure was waiting. It's a kind of strange thing, but it's kind of a good thing, like a gestation period before a birth. Waiting. The second, last week, we looked at the dramatic moment when the Holy Spirit came upon the newborn church in a miraculous infilling. And the waiting and the spirit filling was followed by our third emphasis, which is this week's theme, guidance. How does the baby church find out what God wants to do through his Holy Spirit? How are they led by him? You might think after the miracle of the spirit infilling that guidance ought to be a no-brainer if The Holy Spirit infills all of the believers. They're filled with him. They will do what he wants them to do. But it's not as simple as that. And we find out that the coming of the Holy Spirit in power and glory was not a permanent reality in the form in which we see it on the day of Pentecost. No, the church found out pretty soon that it had many of the human limitations of the people who made up that body. And here they were with no blueprint, no church growth plan, no outline. In the 21st century, we'd know how to do this. We'd hire a consultant who would help us go through a strategic planning process. Some of you are very familiar with this. And we would put up a chart and we'd be taught about how to establish and put our our words, our, our vision into words and our mission. Actually, the early church had some of that going for it. Their vision focused on the kingdom of God and on how Jesus in his life expressed that kingdom coming to earth. But when you get down to goals and strategies and tactics, hey, the disciples, they had no experience with this. What's the difference between strategies, and tactics. I've been through a number of these strategic planning workshops, and I still don't know the difference between strategies and tactics. And then we come up with action plans, the experienced personnel we need to carry out this strategic plan, the financial base. How are we going to finance all of this? But this hodgepodge group of unemployed fishermen, 
amateur Bible students, tax collectors, social activists, hardly holding together as a group. They scratched their heads, and this was their strategic plan. They prayed and asked God's Spirit to guide them. And he did. And we're going to look today at those two books, Luke and Acts, and find out how the Holy Spirit guided the newborn church and see how this applies to us today. First of all, there was supernatural intervention, and that's quite obvious right from the moment of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 2, when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly from heaven there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as the fire appeared among them, and a tongue rested on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. Well, you know, they may not have been able to write it down into one of those pyramid uh, strategic planning uh, diagrams, but but they they sure had an action plan. They were moved to do something, and the Spirit himself was moving them. And then there were signs and wonders, which is really a repetition of the day of Pentecost. We found in Acts chapter 3 and 4, a description of a healing of a crippled beggar that made quite an impact on the disciples and on the people of the city. And this healing became the first of a number of healings and also of some other miraculous events. When uh, in Acts chapter 4, verse 31, when they had play, prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was sh shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God with boldness. Now, this was after the day of Pentecost, but it was kind of another outpouring of the Holy Spirit in a new situation. Then in Acts chapter 5, uh, many signs and wonders were done among the people through the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. So these events did not altogether disappear after the day of Pentecost. Occasionally, not really often, but occasionally, there were new outpourings of what became known as signs and wonders, especially when they went to a new people group or found themselves in a new area in Acts chapter 8. Now those who were scattered went from place to place proclaiming the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah to them. The crowd, with one accord, listened eagerly to what was said by Philip, hearing and seeing the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying with loud shrieks, came out of many who were possessed, and many others who were paralyzed or lame were cured. So there was great joy in that city. Even Simon himself believed. After being baptized, he stayed constantly with Philip and was amazed when he saw the signs and great miracles that took place. That kind of sounds like an action plan. These signs and miracles and healings. And if only they could be depended on. But they only happened once in a while. 
And there were angelic visits. We, we read a couple of times about angels getting involved. That's another supernatural intervention in, in uh, Acts chapter 5. During the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out. And then in Acts 8, 26, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, get up and go down toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. And these angelic interventions were part of the supernatural guidance of the Holy Spirit. But they were infrequent and they were not the day-to-day -day way in which the Holy Spirit guided the church. There were visions and dreams. I found two episodes in which these were important uh, in the experience of the disciples. Once in, in Acts chapter 9, verse 10, there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. This was when Paul had his encounter on the road to Damascus. And the Lord said to him in a vision, it spoke to him in a vision, and he answered, here I am, Lord. And this was a way in which um, the Holy Spirit made something happen and guided uh, Ananias to go reach out to the Apostle Paul. And then in chapter 10, verse 9, there's another episode in which Peter went up on the roof to pray and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while it was being prepared, he fell into a trance, a dreamlike state in which he saw a vision. It was a great vision of a sheet being lowered down with all kinds of animals. And, and Peter was invited by the Lord to uh, take the animals and eat, make a meal for herself. Well, some of these animals were technically unclean. And, uh, and Peter said, no, I don't do things unless they're kosher. And that was a lesson that God gave him through the Holy Spirit-induced vision, and that vision helped Peter open his eyes to Gentiles coming into the church. These uh, supernatural interventions have always been respected as part of the way the Holy Spirit may guide us. They have not been frequent throughout history. Now, one of the interesting things is the Roman Catholic Church has saints, and there's multiplicity of saints. And it's my understanding that one of the things that a person who becomes a saint uh, has to have in, in their bio is a, a miracle that they've done. And there's a lot of creativity to prove that some of these saints have actually done miracles. Uh, but the, in, our, in our time, there's been a new outpouring of uh, respect for these internet, these supernatural events. In the Pentecostal movement, the Charismatic movement, what is now known as the New Apostolic Reformation, an emphasis on prophecy, on signs and wonders, and the more um, supernatural events are respected in groups like this. Although <clears throat> those of us who haven't gotten caught up in these movements see them as misleading as often as they're helpful. And if you look at church history, God intervening directly through a supernatural intervention, the Holy Spirit's coming, signs and wonders, miracles, is more the exception than the rule. More often, God works by this second means, which we see 
the Holy Spirit revealed guidance to the early church through the Old Testament scripture themselves. They were helped when Jesus taught even before his resurrection and said, Oh, how foolish you are, how slow of heart. Luke chapter 24, 25. How slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have declared. Was it not necessary, looking at the Old Testament, that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them things about himself in all the scriptures. This became a very important way in which the early church received guidance. If you read Paul's letters, Peter's, John's, the book of Hebrews, there's constant reference to the Old Testament as a way of establishing the direction the church should go. And uh, that was very important. And also what we now know as the New Testament. But for them was eyewitness testimony, those who had actually been with Jesus. This is the third way in which they became guided. People who had actually been witnesses of him, actually had heard him teach from the Old Testament, became very important in the early church to guide their actions. In Luke 24, 48, uh, Jesus said, you are witnesses of these things. In Acts chapter 1, he talks about uh, how the Lord had given instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. That's in 1-2. And then in 1-8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses, my eyewitnesses to tell other people in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And in chapter 1, verse 21, when they were trying to decide who would replace Judas as one of the 12, uh, one of the uh, important qualifications in verse 22 is that they must become a witness with us, must be someone who has become a witness with us to his resurrection. So this idea of eyewitness testimony was important. And then a fourth way in which guidance came to the early church was through the established leadership of the church. We've already mentioned the apostles and other leaders developed during this New Testament time. And in chapter 1, uh, verse 13 of Acts, when they had entered the city, went, they went to the room upstairs, and this is where they waited where they were staying with Peter and James and John. All of these apostles are mentioned by name as leaders. And these leaders were important because Jesus had chosen them. So one of the ways in which the Holy Spirit was going to guide the church was through these experienced leaders. In Acts chapter 6, we see an interesting episode of this. Now, during those days, when the disciples were increasing in number, the, see, disciples are not just the 12, but the followers of Jesus were increasing in number. The Hellenists complained against the Hebrews. That's different uh, regions of Judaism. Hellenists are in the Greek world. Hebrews tend to be from Palestine because their widows were being neglected in the distribution of daily food. And the 12 called together the whole community of the disciples. So here we have the 12, 
and the community, the whole community of the disciples. And they said, we need to focus on the word of God rather than waiting tables. Therefore, verse 3, select from among yourselves seven men of good standing, full of wisdom. These people were appointed. They're named in verse 5. And verse 6, uh, they had these men stand before the apostles who prayed and laid hands on them. So now, in the development of the church, new leaders were appointed. These are called, later on, deacons. So we have the apostles, we have the deacons, we have the larger group of disciples. And they, together, the disciples, agreed with that decision. But you see how... Uh, leadership and group feedback, group consensus was an important way of discovering the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And then I've added as number five, random irrational events. I don't know what that means, do you? Well, <laughs> what can be more random and irrational than casting lots, flipping a coin, uh, throwing dice to decide who should be the 12th to replace Judas. It's found in Acts chapter 1, verse 21. Uh, one of the men who has accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the Baptist of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us to his resurrection. So they proposed to Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also known as Justice, and Matthias. They prayed and said, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which one these two of these two you have chosen. Take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. Well, they're praying, Lord, show us. How's he going to show them? Maybe a, a, a fire over the head of the selected one. He's done that before. Maybe an angel pointing to the selected one. No, verse 26. They cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was added to the 11 apostles. And this lot is a um, technique for making choices that, well, when you have a toss-up, you take two stones and you put one name on one stone, one on the other. You put them in a in a kind of box, you shake it up and pour them out. The one that comes out first is the one that's selected. That seems to be what the practice was. Well, that's a rather random way of finding the Holy Spirit's guidance. I remember when I was in college, I was having to make a hard decision. Can't remember what it was, but I remember what my mind came up with. Lord, I'm going to look out my dormitory window and if I see a clarinet player from the band walking by, I'll know this is your will. I looked out my window and I saw a clarinet player walking by. And in my, <laughs> I just knew it was the wrong decision. I cast lots. The lot pointed to one choice and I knew it should make the other one. So a random, uh, random evidence like this is something you shouldn't really put too much stock in. But the Holy Spirit even used that. In fact, in Acts chapter 15, there's a time, verse 36, when Paul and Barnabas are, are struggling to decide uh, our next step in the, in the missionary journey. 
And Barnabas, verse 37, wanted to take John with them, who was called Mark, John Mark. Paul decided not to take with them one who had deserted them earlier. Verse 39, the disagreement became so sharp that they parted company. So Barnabas took Mark with him, sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and set out, the believers commending him to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Well, this wasn't casting lots, but it was even more random and serendipitous. They had a fight, and the fight led to two missionary journeys, two missionary teams to double the work that could be accomplished. And the believers put their seal of approval on that. Well, random irrational events, sometimes used by the Holy Spirit. Here's something that's used by the Holy Spirit a lot, uncontrollable circumstances. And for the early church, the most consistent, uncontrollable circumstance was the opposition they experienced, and sometimes uh, breaking out into open persecution. In Acts chapter 8, we read about this, beginning with verse 1. That day a severe persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout the countryside of Judea and Samaria. What a tragedy. Uh, devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church by entering house after house, dragging off both men and women. He committed them to prison. How sad for the church. Verse 4. Now those who were scattered went from place to place, <clears throat> proclaiming the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah to them. This became, this was the first episode of something that became a pattern in the life of the church. Persecution, which made ministry impossible in one situation, moved them to another situation. And that's where God wanted them to go. There's a kind of a, 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 a country gospel song that I heard a long, long time ago. And I've always liked it because it puts this very well. I'm going to let you listen to part of it. When the Canaanites hardened their hearts against God and grieved him because of their sin, God sent a long hornets to bring them to time and to help his own people to win. The hornets persuaded them that it was best to go quickly and not to go slow. God did not compel them to go against their will, but he just made them willing to go. He does not compel us to go, no, no, he never compels us to go. God does not compel us to go against our will, but he just makes us willing to go. Some live hornets were brought to this room, and the creatures allowed to go free. 
You would not need urging to make yourself scarce. You'd want to get out, don't you see? They would not lay hold and by force of their strength throw you out of the window, oh no. They would not compel you to go against your will, but they just make you willing to go. He does not compel us to go, no, no, he never compels us to go. God does not compel us to go against our will, but he just makes us willing to go. The Hornet Song God does not compel you to go. No, no, he never compels you to go. God will not compel you to go against your will, but he'll just make you willing to go. He does have a way of doing that. And this is very common, that uncontrollable circumstances are used by God to give guidance to his church. But I'm going to tell you, number seven kind of snuck up on me, but it's real. Common sense rational thought. You know, the disciples didn't have that pyramid chart and they couldn't plug in all that strategic thinking, but they were doing some kind of strategic strategizing on their own. And, and they, they were doing this by their, their thinking process. And Jesus in Acts 1-3, he presented himself alive to the disciples by many convincing proofs. What are you convincing? You're convincing someone's mind. The Lord Jesus respects our minds and the Holy Spirit respects the mind of the church that he is guiding and all the people who are part of it. And he appeals to your mind. He helps you make rational decisions. We should not see our thinking as the enemy of God's will. God sometimes miraculously intervenes, but sometimes he logically intervenes. Acts chapter 6, that episode about the feeding of the widows when they appointed new officers to accomplish that, that was a, a rational process. They had a problem and they thought it through and uh, they came to a solution and everybody agreed with the solution. That group think is one way that we discern the Holy Spirit's leading and guidance. And then in uh, Acts chapter 9, this is really interesting. Paul was really zealous, <clears throat> and uh, he started preaching more and more after his conversion. And verse 23 of Acts 9, after some time had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night, so that they might kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. They came up with a logical plan. Now, in other episodes, maybe angels had come and intervened, but not this time. It was his friends who intervened. Verse 28, so he went in and out among them in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He spoke and argued with the Hellenists, but they were attempting to kill him. Now things get bad again. Verse 30, when the believers learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Their common sense was the way 
the Holy Spirit guided the church. I think we see many episodes of this. And I think it is God's will that the minds he has given us be involved in the process and kind of oversee the process of discerning what the Holy Spirit is trying to tell us, how he's trying to guide us. There's a wonderful Psalm, verse, Psalm 32, verses 8 and 9, and uh, I will, it begins, I will instruct you and teach you. Now, that's a, that's a rational process. I will instruct you and teach you the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Uh, the King James Version that some of us uh, are most familiar with uh, said, I will guide you with my eye. Interesting way to put it. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Now notice, what our reassurance is not that our eye is upon him, but that his eye is upon us. He guides us by his eye being upon us, not by our determined He's going to escape and, and, and try to keep us from knowing his will and we have to really concentrate. No, he has a way of showing us his will and making it clear to us. And in verse 9, it says, Do not be like a horse or a mule who are without understanding. Once again, the rational process. They're without understanding and that's why we have to temper them with a bit and bridle or else they won't stay around us. That is a wonderful piece of instruction for the early church, for Altadena Baptist Church in 2021, and for us as individuals. Now let's look at Altadena Baptist Church. Yes, we are a church. We have articles of incorporation, a constitution. We file all the necessary paperwork with the state and federal government. Uh, we are conscientious about the way we are governing the church. And all of that is because we developed a strategic plan out of that pyramid process. No, it's kind of not the way it happened. Now, we have had uh, strategic plans along the way, and we're always praying for guidance and the Lord sometimes does it that way. But it's amazing over the years how he has guided this church. Think about it. How did we come to be as a church? It goes back to Sweden because Altadena Baptist was originally a Swedish Baptist church. And the reason there were Baptists in Sweden was because of persecution. The state church, which was then the Lutheran church, saw the Baptists, then called Anabaptists, as threats and actually persecuted them, took away property, and tried to squeeze out their ability to earn a living. That's why many of them came to the United States. That was the cause of Swedish immigration in many cases. And so the Swedish immigrants formed a, a, a little prayer group and became the first Swedish Baptist church. Now, later on, in 1920, a group of believer, Baptist believers looked at the property on the corner of El, El Molino and Calaveras that was owned by the Methodists. And they developed a strategic plan to purchase that property. 
Now, that's not what happened. What happened was the Depression. I know it's hard to believe that there was a time in, for one moment of history, when Methodists were higher on the socioeconomic scale, or Baptists were, than Methodists. But the, the, the happenstance was that in 1920, the Methodists built this church, this white church on the corner, but they couldn't keep it up in the Depression. So in 1934, a group of Baptists who were young business people and up and coming and had a little more means, they bought the property because the Methodists couldn't afford to keep the property. And that property happened to be across the street from Altadena Elementary School. That was another un, un, uncontrollable circumstance. But that meant that there were always lots of kids around the church. And we had youth programs. There was always a ready source there. And then location also near Fuller Seminary, where there were people, creative interns, who could come and help us. And then, in spite of all of that, strategic planning, we tried, we prayed, we didn't grow. And there was a period of time when uh, there was a period of time when we thought we would grow, and we bought all this property, including the property the church, current church is on, and the houses in the back. And we were going to build, we've got pictures of the buildings that were going to be made, but then we didn't grow. And we gave up on the building project. And those buildings in the back, those houses were just not, they were underutilized. And one day someone came up with the idea for a childcare center. And that's how ACC developed. That wasn't out of strategic planning. It was out of the Holy Spirit leading by circumstances beyond our control. Another circumstance beyond our control was the demographic change that took place in the 60s and the change in the pattern of who lived where in this locality. And more and more African-American families began to came, come into our neighborhood. And there were a number of churches that just moved out, of traditionally white churches. But this church decided to stay, to try to be a neighborhood church. And that's how we became an integrated congregation. It was not through doing studies, justice studies, and figuring out that God wanted us to integrate the congregation. It was because of the reality of who lived here and who we felt called to minister to. See how the Holy Spirit has led this church through the years. Look at that list again, all the ways in which he led the early church. He's led Altadena Baptist Church by supernatural intervention through the Old Testament scripture, through the New Testament witness, through leadership that he's called here, and particular individuals, through random irrational events sometimes, and through uncontrollable circumstances, but always, hopefully, through common sense, rational thinking. They, the strategic planning should be done, but we need to be ready for it to be interrupted. The Holy Spirit has other ways of leading. Sometimes just bringing in a particular individual with a vision that changes the direction of the church. And that might be by God's choice. The Holy Spirit will guide his church. And what about your personal experience? You too have to learn 
that that verse in Psalms is not just for the church, but for you. I will instruct you and teach you the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not be like a horse or a mule without understanding whose temper must be curbed with bit and bridle, else it will not stay near you. You are on a journey and you really need the Holy Spirit's guidance, however it comes to you. My advice is that you should look to the Bible for principles to guide you, that you should acknowledge that changing situations may make guidance a moving target. Sometimes he seems to be guiding us one way, but situations show us, no, he's guiding us a different way. We should recognize that making small decisions in response to reality is the road to guidance. Small decisions in response to reality. We should trust, you should trust, common sense, rational thinking, the mind that God gave you, and believe that the Holy Spirit is guiding you. All those seven ways relate to you as well. The supernatural intervention, Old Testament and New Testament scriptures, the leadership in the church that God has given you to be part of. Sometimes irrational, random irrational events, sometimes uncontrollable circumstances, loss of a job, a divorce, all sorts of things can change the reality. But through it all, the Holy Spirit is guiding you. And then your common sense, rational thinking is always part of the equation. But don't overthink it. Relax a little bit. Seeking God's guidance can drive you crazy. But believing in God's guidance can give you total security and assurance in life. Oh, if your assurance is in the fact that your eye is on him, oh, you're going to have nervous nights. But if your assurance is that his eye is on you, you can rest comfortably in the arms of his love. We'd like to invite you for this season to join us online at altadinabaptist.org or our public YouTube page every Sunday morning at 11 a.m. for remote worship. All events are now, but if you need prayer, please reach out to us at altabapprayer at aol.com. And again, we pray God's blessings on you this week.